Welcome to Wise Up Governance and Boards podcast, brought to you by Three Wise Owls Governance Consultants. Covering hot topics in governance, risk, latest regulatory changes, and issues keeping directors and executives awake at night. Here are your hosts, Ainsley Cunningham and Deb Anderson. Welcome to today's episode of Wise Up. Today we are joined by Alex Hutchins. Alex is a partner and head of technology, media and telecommunications industry group at McCulloch Robertson. His key practice areas are data protection and privacy, information technology and telecommunications. In that role, he advises clients extensively on cybersecurity and data protection matters, particularly in connection with the rollout of new technologies, the mobilisation of workforces and reporting and responding to data breaches. Welcome, Alex. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Hi, Alex. Hi. So tell us a little bit about Alex Hutchins and how you've wound up here. <laughs> it's not a very exciting story, I'm sorry to tell you. Um, when, I was, when I was at law school, I um, took a real interest in the internet, which was very new and developing at the time, which tells you a little bit about how old I am. And um, at, at the time, it was really the thing that interested people was the power of being able to share files and be connected, you know, globally and you could repeat um, the same thing many, many times without losing any quality. And so um, copyright and sort of protection of rights was a really big deal. And as we've grown through that time and seen the internet expand into not just, you know, connected systems, but now wireless systems and we move into 5G, everything is connected, everything can be shared and distributed. And um, not only has that brought benefits, but it's obviously brought um, risks with it as well. And so from that very early point, I've kind of had a real interest in um, this intersection of law and technology and and how it's changing our lives quite rapidly. And so I've just really followed that that path um, ever since I started practising as a lawyer. I've always been connected um, with that industry and working this space a little bit, and it's just, just kind of grown from there. So it's, um, it's a really boring backstory. I'd make a terrible film character. <laughs> <laughs> no, and in an industry, I guess, too, that's still relatively young compared to traditional financial or accounting or legal backgrounds, um, cyber security is something that's actually relatively immature in that sense. Look, absolutely right. Um, you know, some of, the, some of the legislation that's trying to deal with these issues is 30 or 50 or more years old. And, you know, not only was this kind of thing not even conceived of, it certainly wasn't um, addressed in the legislation or the legislation wasn't crafted in a way that's very flexibly able to be applied to this. So that's, that's that real challenge. It's, you know, this is so new um, and things are moving so fast that the law is as ever um, playing catch up. And it's, you know, there's some tensions there. It's really obvious that things just aren't quite from a regulatory setting um, perspective, ready to deal with the issues that we're facing day to day. Yeah. Square peg, round hole scenario by the sounds of it. (laughs) So um, tell us a bit, uh, some of the things that might be keeping directors and executives awake at night in the cyber security space. Look, I I think the ever-present threat of um, some sort of cybersecurity incident is what's keeping directors awake at the moment. And indeed, um, everyone throughout 
um, management teams and, and professional services teams alike. Um, it is just, I think, the reality that in the modern world with all of our systems and all of our workforces so connected um, that there are so many potential uh, threat vectors, if I can use a really sort of ugly industry term, but, you know, there are so many potential points of attack and so many weaknesses that I think, um, you know, everyone in management really is just waiting for the call to say that there has been some sort of cybersecurity incident, whether it be um, privacy related to do with personal information or whether it be to do with um, corporate information, you know, the, the secret formula, the secret source has somehow been compromised, um, you know, that sort of cybersecurity incident or a ransomware attack where uh, systems are compromised and functionality has been shut down um, as a result of that and, you know, threats are being made that systems won't be put online again unless um, a ransom is paid. You know, that sort of thing is almost inevitable now. I think the cliche that it's a matter of if, not when, um, and and everyone in management, I think, is thinking about that. And if they're not, uh, they certainly should be. And how are organisations dealing with, say, ransomware attacks? Look, there are, specifically with ransomware attacks, you know, there are a couple of schools of thought um, around this. You know, one is pay the ransom and cross your fingers and hope for the best and hope that, you know, whoever it is who's locked up your system will be good to their good to their word, their digital word, and unlock your system again. So that's typically how it works, you know, that's the sort of nightmare scenario. You boot up your computer and instead of the login screen, a message splashes across to say, oh, you, your system's been locked and you need to pay this many Bitcoin to unlock it. And if you do, um, it will be unlocked. And so there's a, there's a school of thought that you can do that and, Things will, you know, things will work. It's a kind of business model, a recognised business model. If the ransomware attackers didn't then unlock the system, you know, that threat's no longer going to result in money being paid because people will soon learn that um, if you if you pay, you still lose your system. So there's no point in paying. Um, there's another philosophy, of course, which is you don't you don't pay um, and you try and solve the problem and unlock the systems yourself. This can be um, a, a really, really difficult thing to do, time-consuming, technically difficult, very expensive, um, but there are obviously many principles at play here and people don't like to respond to ransomware. So, yeah, ransomware specifically, you know, kind of plays out in a couple of couple of very distinct ways um, depending on that, that philosophy. And is spear phishing attack still quite prevalent? Absolutely. So... Um, Spear phishing is actually one of the most common attacks that we see today. And the reason behind that is um, social, it's a form of social engineering. And, and I'll come explain what that is in a second. But it's a form of social engineering which enables attackers to get access to other information um, which might then be more useful um, from a from a cybersecurity perspective. So um, there's a very famous um now white hat hacker called Kevin Mitnick, and he used to be back in the 80s, one of the um, FBI's most wanted people, such were his skills in penetrating IT networks. Um, but he, he is now on the speaking circuit and shares stories and writes books about um, the, of the types of things that he does when he consults to companies to harden their um, systems. But one of the things he talks about is that 
individuals are still the weakest link. It's the human factor you can, that really is the best way into a system. So you can have all sorts of IT protections, but if people still set their uh, password as welcome one or as password, or if they put up on social media, you know, their pets' names and their birthdays and their first, you know, first share house address and all of those usual questions that you get to prompt when you uh, forget your password. If that sort of information can be gleaned, then you can use that to obtain access to other systems where you don't have the proper credentials. And so spear phishing is really about, um, not just blanket attacks, but quite targeted attacks, understanding that a particular person, it might be an IT manager, it might be a CEO, someone who's got very highly credentialed permissions um, within an IT system, if you can compromise them personally, um, get their information and perhaps you can then log in as them and exercise those credentials or pretend to be them and force other people um, to divulge information. So a, a classic threat is that, that we're seeing now is if, an, if a CEO's email is compromised, that email account is then used to send a very demanding email to the finance team saying, we're late on this account, you need to pay this immediately, here are the details. And of course, the CEO has no idea that email is being sent and the finance people will, of course, do immediately as they're told by the CEO. Um, and and that that account will be um, an account linked to the attackers and off they go with the money. So it, that's one of those things where if you can compromise an individual through very targeted attacks, um, then you have a very good chance of compromising broader systems, which is then the you know the real outcome that is being sought there. And um, so, are you seeing? Um businesses who may be targeted in this space in terms of ransomware, um, are they uh, actually paying the money? Uh, yes. Look, I, I have seen it. I've seen it done or I, or I know um, that people have done that. And to be perfectly honest, you know, that is why the attack works and the model works. The easiest way through to you know, have your systems unencrypted or decrypted and unlocked um, is to pay the ransom. Um, that's that's the deal and you get it back and there are reports that you know that does actually work and as I mentioned earlier, that's the business model. If it didn't if it didn't work, I guess um, very quickly that would cease to be an effective attack. Although um, you know law enforcement in particular is not not particularly keen on that approach because it does, of course, make it a more effective business model and probably will lead to greater prevalence. So there, there is, I think, no absolute right or wrong there, but people, people do pay. I've certainly um, heard of that happening. Mm. And are you still seeing um, attacks from, uh, say, malware being installed um, through, say, USBs? laying around or is that becoming a bit redundant now and yep. it's more uh, wireless or too many people oh, look, the, the, <laughs> <laughs> certainly the the the, um, the compromised usb is uh, you know cyber security professionals worst nightmare because if you think about the number of devices we have now just in our personal possession and then you multiply that across a whole organization there are um, all sorts of they they all become individual points of vulnerability and if you can get a usb inserted into one of those usb ports um, with some malware on there then you can get access to the whole system 
and and do all sorts of things. You can install listening devices, which then start crawling around and waiting for people to type in um, passwords, and they can just watch network traffic and understand what happens within that organisation and try and determine a great way to attack it. There's um, a report, and I, I believe it, I have no reason not to believe it, although um, I imagine because it's part of sort of state security it would be um, partly contentious, but there is a report of um, a, a virus or malware called Stuxnet, which was originally promulgated by um, the US security services. And um, reportedly it was used um, in an attack on an Iranian nuclear reactor several years ago now. And basically the the vector through which that was brought in was an individual who worked in that nuclear reactor was was compromised or working with the US and managed to, through a USB port, introduce a, a compromised USB device, which then deployed some code into the system and then affected the system so it would um, overheat and melt down. Um, and so that led to sort of physical destruction through the introduction of malware code. Now, that's obviously a very different scenario from what most businesses are dealing with, but it's a really great example of how a compromise, those USB ports are, are really um, still a, a major vulnerability. Um, and as a result of that, a lot of organisations, in fact, disable USB ports on, on work um, dispensed laptops. They'll say, well, the, you know, we, we don't need that. We will manage all of our software installation centrally. You, you just don't need those USB ports. They're just too great a vulnerability. Um, but I should say with the evolution of wireless technologies and connected devices, it's not only through that sort of infected or compromised USB device that, that malware can be introduced. There's all sorts of ways now. Um, open Wi-Fi networks works are another great example of um, a way into devices. Yeah, for sure. And I think you've um, briefly touched on it before, Alex, about um, with Kevin Mitnick and the human element still being the weakest link in organisations. So from a risk mitigation perspective is um, training of those staff still um, the greatest form of um, risk management? Look, I think so. Awareness is such a powerful tool here because people operate through habit, um, particularly in current circumstances where not only are they trying to do their job, but they're doing it in compromised circumstances from home and they're also trying to homeschool their kids and have everything else going on as well. Um, quite often people are distracted when they're doing things and interfacing with their devices. And so if they have good habits, they'll just default to doing things the right way. And so if they see an email with, for instance, a hyperlink in it, they'll think, oh, well, that's, that's suspicious. I've, you know, I've been trained on not clicking on links in emails and everyone has heard that, but quite often, you know, you, if you are distracted and you've got a few things going on, if that's not fully ingrained and habitual, you know, that's the sort of time when people are most vulnerable to making a mistake or stepping outside of that best practice. And so I think not only training staff, but, you know, updating that training and doing it regularly so that it reinforces the message 
and also updates it to reflect any new threats um, that are that are being seen because this is such an evolving space. You know, every 12 months there is a slightly different thing or a new trend that we're seeing and, and it's a great opportunity to, as I say, reinforce the message but also update awareness to be aligned with current practices. Yeah, absolutely. So are there any new forms of cyber attack that are sort of emanating? Oh... Uh, uh, I mean, look, there's, yes, yes, there are. Um, and I think the best example of that is, you know, we've seen the Prime Minister and other senior government ministers come out in the last couple of months talking about the threat of, you know, state-sponsored actors and that the number um, of attacks and the sort of vectors through which those attacks are being made are increasing and changing. Um, so I think the, the spear phishing, I think the thing to note is that um, the social engineering component is getting so advanced that the spear phishing attacks are becoming really, really believable and much more sophisticated. Long gone are the days where a logo is sort of snipped out of somewhere and pasted in roughly and then there's typos and different fonts and things. The thing about spear phishing is now people are being targeted in their own habits um, and their own personal behaviour, be it online or in the real world, are kind of being tracked and monitored. And then the right message is being crafted to really hit a vulnerability. And so I think that's that's still um, a really prevalent example and an evolving one. Um, we're seeing a lot of COVID-related scams as well. So particularly with people being on JobKeeper and JobSeeker and um, there are repayment holidays on loans and um, all of those things mean that there are people are expecting to have conversations with government agencies and and some you know their their home loan provider and other major corporates and so we're seeing a lot of um messages trying to pick up on that dynamic and threatening people you're late on your loan or you didn't fill out um, the the loan waiver application properly you need to call us straight away or you owe us this money and you must pay us immediately and so there's a because people are expecting that government intervention and that strange interaction with with the large corporates and because these are uncharted times there's not you know really a well-known process for this this is quite often the first time any of us has been dealing with this sort of thing then um, you know that that kind of uncertainty is right for the picking so i think a lot of those covid related scams are probably the the real emerging threat and the the large volume of of threat that we didn't see you know, 12 months ago for instance just generally working from home and not having the same sort of security in place as well? Precisely. You know, people are connecting to devices through their home Wi-Fi networks. They might not be as secure as the corporate network that they plug into when they're in the office. So uh, that's an example. People are more lax about even just physical security. So if they might be, you know, reviewing a report at home or you know, looking at the quarterly numbers or something and they print them out to scribble notes and then they just throw them out into the general domestic rubbish. You know, they, those sorts of things would normally go into secure destruction or into a shredder or something like that. So it's not even a cyber threat as such. It's a real world threat. But as you say, working from home is just a different environment where people um, don't have the same resources available to them. Uh, so cut corners. 
and also aren't necessarily thinking in quite the same way. You know, they're thinking about making dinner and they're typing an email to the boss urgently at the same time. They're not really in work mode. And, you know, that's that's a real problem from a from a cybersecurity perspective. It's the reality and it's no criticism of everyone. We all have to work that way. But it's, you know, really worth being aware that that's a totally different dynamic and one where there are new threats. Yeah, and I think too for organisations that don't have um, a lot of resources in the first place, like for large IT teams, large legal teams, that sort of stuff to actually manage some of these um, challenges, uh, it's even more difficult for those organisations to, one, know where to find the information in the first place and two, then how do we manage it and deal with it and um, kind of get a little bit of a risk framework in place. So what are the sorts of things that um, sort of the SMEs can be doing in this space? Yeah, and look, I, I agree with you 100%. It's it's the smaller organisations who really now just have yet another thing they need to be expert in um, that just really, it becomes, you know, it's, it truly is relentless. So I think you know, one of the things that um, permeates all of the, all of the sort of um, best practice guides around cybersecurity is to understand what your environment is and where the perimeter is so that you can um, then put the appropriate perimeter protections in place. So that's really about understanding, well, what is what is the infrastructure we have in the office? What are the devices people have in their hands? What are the systems we use? And what, what then are, are the obvious vulnerabilities? So if you've got a mobile workforce um, whom you've given mobile devices to, they should all have password protection on them so that if they're lost on the train at least, um, you know, there is a, a barrier there um, because a lot of important information is stolen on them. If you've got um, a corporate network installed um, in your premises, obviously you should have a firewall set up for that. Um, if you use a lot of cloud-based systems, you can you can get a lot of security in built into those or wrapped around those probably is a better way to say it through your provider. So, you know, understanding that, yes, I'm storing things up in the cloud and that's a potential vulnerability. What am I, what am I doing with my provider around security there? Because there are different levels of security you can get based on, you know, how much you're willing to pay and what sort of sensitivity of information you have. So I think understanding those elements of your system mean that you can then identify the risks and address them. And it doesn't mean that you have to address all of them or you have to have the gold standard everywhere, but, you know, different things will be more important and less important for different businesses. So unless you have that understanding, you just can't begin to answer the question. Um, And I think talking to your staff about these issues, it, it can be formal training if you've got the resources for that. But equally, if you're a much smaller organization, the beauty of that is uh, you have a much more direct connection with a higher proportion of your staff. And so you can talk to them. You know, the staff meeting is a great forum to talk about cybersecurity issues, um, you know, see what people might be seeing in their personal lives, any issues they're seeing working from home and how they might catch themselves um, cutting corners or seeing problems arising. You know, so there's a degree of flexibility there which can actually become a strength as well. And I, I guess... 
finally as well, um, there are some really good resources out there now. If you are hearing some of this and think, well, I don't even know where to start. I'm not, I'm really not an IT person and some of these terms don't even mean anything to me. Um, things like the Australian Cyber Security Centre, uh, the ACSC, is becoming much more active um, around education, I'm finding, in the last 12 or 24 months and beyond. It's um, producing reports and publishing materials, which are really helpful to set up frameworks and best practice kind of behaviours. And so it's worth, you know, as a jumping-off point, going to something like uh, the Australian Cyber Security Centre's website would be a great place to start. Yeah, they are good resource, aren't they? They, they, they really are. They really are. Um, as I say, they've been around for a long time, but do seem to be shifting. I think to to really um, be much more visible and um, supportive of of people in the marketplace who need to to learn some of this stuff, which is is really foreign to some people. So yeah, they're a great place to start. So some tips, Alex, in terms of. Choosing passwords. Obviously, a lot of people use the names of animals, <laughs> children. children. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I know there's quite a few sort of password programs that you can buy, but in terms of choosing something that's easily easy to remember for yourself, what are some tips? <laughs> well, look. Um, Without giving out your password. Yeah, Yeah, I'm trying very hard not to give out any of my usual ones. We've all got the (laughs) usual ones. I mean, look, using a password manager is is by far the best way because, you know, you don't even know what it is. Um, It's kind of stored securely and it's really... um, uh, unguessable and yes of course you face the problem that you can't remember it but if you've got your system set up properly that will be secure enough to get you in and no one else um in in terms of actually choosing one that means something to you um there are we, we were talking about social engineering before and you know one of the things is if people understand who your kids are or where you live um, what football team you support, whatever it is, those things are kind of guides into, well, how can we start trying to force our way into your system by guessing passwords? So this sort of brute force attack um, comes from social engineering. They're educated guesses, but then other brute force attacks just run, you know, every, every word in the dictionary can be run into um, into a password field to see if that will work. And so using sentences rather yeah. than individual words is a great way to do it because that's that's not so susceptible to that brute force attack it's you know adding to the complexity um, of course using different characters um, so sometimes you can switch you know almost like you're you're texting or trying to look like an energy drink or something where you swap characters for letters so they sort of look the same and you know the word but they're a bit different can be another way to go about it um, and not reusing the same password across multiple platforms is important because um, again, going to the social engineering point, if they've managed to crack into one of your accounts, then that password will be the first one that gets tried across every other account. And if your, you know, for instance, email has been compromised, um, it will be easy to tell which service providers you interface with, and so it will be possible to start checking all of those with with the password that's been compromised. And so, really, not reusing the same password is critically important because once that gets out, um, likely it will be tried 
relied on so many other of your presences online. Yeah, good tips. And so all these things have failed and you've now suffered a data breach. Where to from here? Yeah. First steps, so all the bits in between. The, the phone call everyone dreads getting. Um, ideally, you will already have had a data breach response plan put together. And one of these, you know, one of these plans really does what it says on the label. Once you have a compromise or a suspected compromise in your system, you then follow the steps. And so that sort of plan should set out who it is in your organisation who's going to take responsibility for leading the response, for conducting investigations. So you might have the IT people trying to work out, all right, what's happened with the systems. And you might have the comms people saying, all right, well, how are we going to deal with it if the press starts ringing us or customers start complaining? Uh, You may have lawyers thinking about, you know, which regulators you need to deal with. You will have senior decision makers who can say, well, understanding all of this information that's come back, here's what we're going to do. So that that is the ideal response. And that, of course, requires some planning in advance. And again, particularly for um, smaller businesses, that is a degree of sophistication and almost a luxury that many can't afford. And so you'll be caught without that. Um, The first thing I would do is try to get a handle on what has happened. Um, And if you need to get, this will almost certainly involve some sort of IT assessment. So if you don't have in-house IT capability I would be um, trying to get a cybersecurity response person and you can Google them now. It's one of the fastest growing jobs um, in the world, I think. Um, You can Google them and find them and they will come in and do some forensic work to work out what systems were compromised, when has data been exfiltrated or not, Um, if so, what was it, Um, what other unusual activity has happened on your network, you know, have passwords been used to try and um, log into other accounts or have administrator privileges been found and is there now um, some strange activity on the network as a result of that. So um, trying to get a handle on it is the really most important thing because, again, you can't respond unless you know what it is you're responding to. Um, if uh, Coming back to the Cybersecurity Centre, um, they are very involved with industry and have for a long time encouraged people to report to them um, if they suffer a cyber attack, um, partly so that they have a very clear picture of what's happening um, out there, but also because they do have resources who can assist and help point you in the right direction. So, you know, we commonly get questions, well, do we have to call the police or do we have to call this regulator? Um, Do we have to call our insurance company? And um, that's something that um, they can they can help you through on the sort of regulatory and enforcement side. Um, I, I mentioned insurance. You should hopefully also have cyber security insurance, which may be able to help um, respond to the problem and you know, rebuild databases or defray some of the costs of dealing with it. But it, and if you do have that, um, you should quite quickly call your insurer because they'll be able to help and will themselves have some processes in place for, for dealing with things. We'll, we'll ask questions that will guide um, your response to it. Um, and uh, so they're, they're kind of the practical things you can do. Um, of course, we, we quite often get called in. We're an external law firm and there are regulatory uh, responses that need to be considered 
you have a data breach that, uh, or a cyber incident that affects certain types of information, and so, um, and and those regimes involve notification um, between between seventy two hours and sort of more like thirty days. So you need to act quickly, and so you need to find out quite quickly um, if those things apply to you. Um, so so calling. Um, in some sort of regulatory um, expert will be of assistance as well. Absolutely. So how do you find the dealings with, um, like you've mentioned, regulatory uh, providers, presumably um, the Privacy Commissioner and things like that? How do you find the dealings in that space and, um, you know, managing the complexities of, well, obviously there'd be varying levels of degree of cyber attack and, um you know, what the sensitivity of that data looks like and um, the volume of it? Yeah, look, absolutely. There's um, every every cyber attack is a bit different and that's because every organisation is different. And um, look, the the process from a, from a privacy perspective, you mentioned the Australian Information Commissioner, uh, the OAIC, they have a website set up for uh, people to notify um data breaches when they occur and under under the privacy regime um, mandatory data breach notification came in in early 2018 in february 2018 Um, that basically requires you to assess um, whether there has been an eligible data breach and there's a sort of two-limb test basically have you um lost information has been unauthorised loss of or, um, sorry, unauthorised access to or disclosure of a loss of information um, or um, have you lost information in circumstances where that um, unauthorised access or disclosure could then be likely. Um, if those, if that has happened, so the physical thing has happened, then is there a likelihood of serious harm? And so then you have to assess, once you know you've got a breach, you have to assess, well, is serious harm likely to follow for individuals? And so that then becomes a quite complex, frankly, assessment of um, what information you hold, what might have been compromised and what could be the consequences of that compromise. And, you know, that that can be very different for different organisations. So obviously if you store a lot of credit card details, bank account details, um, a lot of identification details, driver's licenses or something, if those things are compromised, then there's a very high risk of serious harm. It almost goes without saying because they are so valuable from a financial fraud perspective, from an identity fraud perspective. Um, sometimes there are some more difficult judgments to make when it's perhaps just contact details like you know name, email address, address, but sometimes these which perhaps don't appear to be quite so serious on their face can be really serious. So the telcos and social services organisations are really alive to the issue of um, people who might have an AVO in place or might be um, uh, in protection from an abusive relationship. And so if their information, their location um, relates very directly to physical private, uh, physical safety. And if that information were disclosed in the wrong way or the wrong forum, then that could immediately result to a very real threat to someone's physical safety. And so it's not a simple matter of saying, well, that's just a mailing address. You know, that, that could never result in harm. These, depending on the circumstances, it could very easily lead to very serious harm. And so that kind of assessment is, is difficult to make, but is exactly the sort of thing um, that you need to make in order to be able to notify that. But um, apart from those internal um, 
decisions and machinations in terms of actually how do you notify and are they easy to deal with? The OAIC has a very good website set up. Uh, it's a web portal where you can notify them and it takes you through every single one of the elements that you need to complete in order to make a proper notification. And so, you know, the, the process itself is is um, very smooth when you actually get to it. Um, and, you know, I have to say from my own personal experience, you know, the dealings are very professional. Um, there is a very clear understanding that, um, you know, data protection, privacy breaches can happen despite the best of intentions and despite great systems um, and, and really high levels of education and compliance. And so it's it's um, about, uh, it's not a punitive exercise, if mm. I can put it that way. Yeah. So you mentioned, um, you know, where it might just be an email address or an address and who would make that assessment, um, say, if that is actually um, compromised somebody's physical safety in terms of, say, witness protection or, um, you know, a domestic violence situation? Who Would it be the individual whose information has been compromised to actually determine that um, element of threat? Or, like, because, um, you know, say if you're a... a, a you know, an organisation that might not be aware of that for that individual. Um, So you would have no visibility, no understanding. How would you then know that that's um, become um, an actual physical threat? Um, and look, I guess that's that's one of the potential flaws of the system. You don't, you only have to notify individuals if you've made the assessment that serious harm is likely to result from the data breach. And so, um, it, it might be that you're not aware, and so make the wrong decision, or are aware and just make the wrong decision. Um, and as a result, don't notify, and the individual never is as a result never aware of the breach, never aware of the potential threat. So it's yeah, it, it's not um, interactive with the individuals in that way. Um, the decision making process is internal, and then once you've decided whether or not you have to notify whether you have an eligible data breach, then you um, then you move forward and you tell the regulator and and tell affected mm. individuals, but. Yeah, um, yeah it, it's, it's very possible um, that you are making decisions without full information. Um, in, in fact, I mean, it, it's almost inevitable. You're making decisions without full information and that's why many organisations are rightly taking quite a cautious approach to this. Um, you know, there, there is no threshold, bright line test, you know, what is serious harm and what is not. So there is a judgment call involved, but because of that kind of risk and because of the reputational risk that flows from perhaps not notifying, but it coming out later on, um, a lot of organisations are taking that conservative approach and saying, well, we want to notify. And to be honest, there's a shift, I think, in in many organisations thinking, and they recognise that being upfront and honest about this can actually be reputationally enhancing. Mm. You know, everyone understands that things can go wrong, they do go wrong, but it's actually how you respond um, that shows the nature of the organisation that you are. And um, so, yeah, I think I think that cautious approach that I've mentioned is, is a good one. Mm. Um, you 
know, there's I think two two examples probably if we've got the time. Yes, um, absolutely. The Red Cross, the um, the Red Cross suffered a data breach. Um, famously uh, a handful of years ago now um, a, a white hat hacker actually found some records published online um, insecurely and and let them know and they were very open about their response I mean partly because of the sensitivity of the records they hold but it was widely seen as um, a really ideal response and something that reinforced the seriousness with which they treat um, personal information there was uh, another very famous online um it's an australian online company they're, they're sort of darling of the startup world and i won't mention them by name but you know they were probably an example of a company who tried to hide away a data breach um you know in a sort of press release that was really about something else um and it was called out someone noticed it and it you know, very quickly became the cause of outrage online and they ultimately um, ended up with a notification that was complete and told people exactly what had happened and what they'd done to fix it. Actually ended up being a really great response. It was, you know, nailed everything really well, but it was tarnished by the fact that that first go out to the market was trying to just kind of hide it away a little bit or that was the impression um, that came through from the way it was notified to the public and so yeah it can it can really make a make a difference to your corporate standing mm-hmm. how you approach something like that and there are real benefits in in notifying and being being open about what you've done mm. um, to respond to the problem and what about organizations that have faced multiple attacks like um, toll or someone like that where it just keeps being a repeat offense and you know is it because um they're not fixing the vulnerabilities or they're not doing enough of a debrief after an attack or or they are strengthening the systems and because they've become a, a target, they're just, um, you know, hackers are trying to expose further vulnerabilities. Like what, what, what are you seeing in that space? Yeah, I, I mean, toll, <laughs> you just have to feel sorry for toll in, in many respects. It's, you know, a kind of horror scenario having two major incidents um, in the space of a few months. Um, I think it's no reflection on them necessarily at all. They have very sophisticated systems, but there are so many different threat vectors and so many different uh activists out there so activists by which i mean sort of um, cyber attackers out there um it, it's impossible to completely protect against all of the threats and so even if you do have very robust systems um, and very good training in place and you update regularly and you patch all of the software and you do all of the right things um, with an organization like that that has such a huge spread um, around the country even you know regionally around the world and such complex systems it's impossible to to choke off everything um, and so there will just be vulnerabilities somewhere it's inevitable um, which is why you know we always talk about the matter of if not when mm. um, and certainly you know the regulators, you know, going back to the OAIC, it's possible that you can suffer a data breach without having done anything wrong. From a privacy perspective, your obligation is to um, take reasonable steps to implement security measures to protect against unauthorised access and use and disclosure of information. And you can do that, but it still doesn't mean that you are impenetrable from a cybersecurity 
perspective. And so it is possible that you, you know, have a data breach and you have to report it, but ultimately you haven't done anything wrong because you've done as much as you can, but it's not impossible. It's not possible to be 100% secure 100% of the time, particularly because it evolves so quickly. So um, yeah, look to your point, there will be incidences, I think, increasingly of large organisations that have more than one breach or notify more than one breach, and that is just because um, of their complexity and also, I think, because of the just the sheer number of attackers out there um, trying to you know, trying to interfere with systems, and it might be because they are a specific target or just because generally uh, people are trying to attack large corporates. Mm. You, you can buy... On you know on, on the dark web, everyone talks about the dark web, and it's, you know <laughs> there are it's, you know you can get anything on there. But you know one of seriously one of the very common commodities you can buy is sort of cyber attacks as a service. Um, you can buy you know, denial of service attacks, and you can buy all of the hacking tools. You can buy them to use yourself, or you can pay people to to you know deploy them on your behalf and. One of the big four um, consulting firms does an annual report and, you know, it sort of talks about the marketplace and there are service levels and people have feedback and it's all, you know, it, it's a it's a very service-oriented market. It's a very competitive market and it just goes to show you how, how you know, cyber threats have been commoditized mm. uh, and used by uh, organized crime and used by people who just want to, you know, mischief makers, as it were. So it's, I think... That, that's the problem. It's yeah. now just an ever-present threat. And they probably want the notoriety too. The bigger the name, the, the, yeah. the bigger <laughs> reputation they build for themselves, really, probably. That's that's absolutely right. In you know, chat rooms and forums, there's, um, there is a lot of um, reputation building going on around you know, which code you've written and what <laughs> you were responsible for. Mm. So are you finding that training of employees is being effective for those companies that are doing training? Is it, or is it reactionary rather than proactive? So, look, yes, yes, and no to both of those questions. There is training. Training can be really effective, and I think that particularly around um, you know, how to respond to your own personal domain. So that's email, uh, you know, emails with hyperlinks in them, and SMSs that appear to be asking for information and login or contact details. Um, that's very that's very effective and you can buy tools now that you, know, you kind of roll them out in your organisation and they um, they do mock attacks and they see how many staff respond to them and they have click-through rates and then they provide a report and you can kind of see what the level of compliance is. Um, again, there's the human element. So um, I, I've heard of training sessions in, in very large corporates um very comprehensive but then if you put a usb out that's got some you know if it says redundancies 2020 on it or something like that the human factor means that someone will definitely pick up that usb and definitely be interested in what's on there and so um you know that that sort of training to training people that no matter what the usb looks like um you shouldn't be putting it into your computer for instance as one example you know it, you've still got to overcome that human element so the the training um, needs to be really effective to overcome that curiosity um but it 
too often I have to say, you know, a lot of large organisations do do very sophisticated training like that and on a regular basis, you know, every 12 months it's part of your ongoing training just like, you know, appropriate workplace behaviour or something like that. You just roll it out every 12 months and update it. Um, again, easier in larger organisations, bigger bigger budgets, people can spend more time devoted to doing that sort of thing. Uh, smaller organisations, I do see it tends to be more reactive um, and that's just just a function of everything that small businesses are having to deal with at once um, and that sort of more sophisticated proactive training is not something that time permits and money permits amongst everything else always. So, yeah, I, I see a real mixture out there. All right. Well, thank you so much, Alex. And I think that's about all we have time for today. But before we wrap up, is there any sort of um, top tips that you want to leave our listeners with today? Yeah, look, we've just been talking about training and I I really do think um, having an increased level of staff awareness, you know, from the, from the CEO who are quite often the worst um, cybersecurity <laughs> um, vulnerabilities in an organisation right through to the bottom. Um, having that training and awareness is really important. I would say put some time into understanding what your cybersecurity posture looks like. So what is, your, what is your perimeter? What devices do you have? What systems do you have? And how might you harden that perimeter is really important. And then I would say finally be ready to respond so be prepared for the fact that this is really a matter of if and not when but if you are prepared it can be um, as as painless as it can possibly be and you know you can get back to business um, as quickly as you possibly can and that's ultimately ultimately got to be the aim here Great tips. Yeah, absolutely. Go and get your data breach response plan today. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, thank you, Alex, and uh, thank you to all our listeners and uh, join us next time for another episode of Wise Up. That's all for today. Until next time, happy podcasting. And remember, if you're enjoying the show, check out our other episodes and all things governance at www.3wiseowls.com.au.